First scripture reading, Psalm 110, and then from Romans 14, and then we'll read the Catechism Answer together, question and answer 26 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Psalm 110 of David, a psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty, From the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Amen. Romans chapter 14, Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 9. Here once again, God's holy word. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. grass withers. Flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Question 26. We'll read the answer together. How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. It was interesting to see this past week as the uh, new presidential administration was brought in and the president and vice president were sworn in that uh, there's still the, the symbolism that is used in, in our culture of taking a solemn oath and doing so with an appeal to a higher authority. So the president raises his hand 
and uh, places his hand on the Bible and even finishes his oath with the phrase, so help me God. Now in our day, it's probably more pageantry than uh, anything else. And probably, you could probably also say that the moment it's determined that Americans no longer want or expect this kind of symbol, uh, federal politicians would probably stop doing it. But it's interesting because what this taking of an oath is communicating is that everything that is done in the execution of the office, all that you do is being watched. And one day, all that you do in the execution of this office will be evaluated by an almighty God. The president will one day answer to him. And the consideration of this truth is supposed to impress upon the one taking the office that he or she should not be doing so for selfish reasons and ought to change course quickly if there is anything lacking in uh, the desire to take the office. Moreover, at some point, this was meant to communicate to all of us Americans that we too will one day give an account to God as Citizens, like the president, we sit under the rule and the authority of the king of kings. He will judge us from his glorious throne. We ought to live with a careful awareness of that day. This is really what becomes one of the most practical truths in all of scripture. We are to understand and to know that we look forward. Uh, we, un- we understand that we will stand before our God. One of the inconsistencies, one of the contradictions that you can see even now um, as we look to the highest offices of our federal government. The Roman Catholic Church, and we think about what we talked about this morning in the issue of abortion. The Roman Catholic Church, very clear on what they teach uh, about abortion. And all of the members of cabinet, of the cabinet now, who are members of the Roman Catholic Church, cut straight against uh, the teaching of their own church on the issue of abortion. Roman Catholic Church, very opposed to abortion. All the Roman Catholic members of cabinet right now, very much pro-abortion. And that's one of the examples where you say, uh, is there really a grasping of this truth that we will one day give an account to God. If your own church impresses these things upon you, but you want to go in directly the opposite direction. So very practical for us to consider. Are we ordering our lives according to the kingship of Christ? Are we living our lives knowing and expecting that we will one day stand before him? Psalm 36 uh, speaks of what we might call practical atheism. It says this, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. He has no expectation of coming judgment. He has no expectation that he will answer for the things that he does. And so what does he do? Sin proliferates into every area of his life. The words of his mouth, it says, are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. I'm always reminded of this truth uh, of those who think they will not be judged. When you hear stories of people 
who are convicted of crimes that they committed many, many years earlier. So recently, even in the last couple of years, someone nicknamed the the Golden State Killer was finally convicted after um, successfully hiding for about 40 years or so. They had searched for him. Whenever something like that happens, it's a glimpse into the reality of the last day. It should remind us that we answer to a higher power. This is what we read in Romans chapter 14. The power and the authority of Christ are declared and established. There the the apostle says to us in Romans 14, uh, Christ died and returned so that he might be Lord. In other words, he might be king. He might be ruler. And then the passage very quickly then moves into practical things. You then, why do you judge your brother? The judgment of a brother, a, a, a communal sin, which is directly connected in Paul's mind to the lordship and the kingship of Christ. John Owen said that, that this kind of mentality around the kingship of Christ, the lordship of Christ, is an effectual means of preserving us and preventing backsliding, prevents us from falling away. It prevents us from allowing sin to run rampant in our lives. We're living under the reign of a king. The wonder of the gospel, of course, is that we can settle accounts with this king now. The the doctrine of justification is so glorious because uh, uh, the, the truth that we have, the hope that we have, the comfort that we have in Christ is that to believe in Jesus Christ and to have that verdict of not guilty and indeed that verdict of righteous is one that reverberates throughout time. When the Spirit awakens our hearts to the truths of the gospel, when we exercise faith in Jesus Christ and our sins are washed away, The verdict that comes from the throne of God reverberates throughout time. So that, in a sense, is is glimpsing the last day. And God, by the work of his spirit, of course, fits his people and fashions them for that day of judgment. But all those who are God's people will stand up on that day. And we will see the work that God has done in them. And it will be not because of their works that they are saved. It will be because of Christ and his blood. And his righteousness. Nevertheless, there will be something genuine that will have been there in the lives of believers. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is the king of kings. One Puritan says it this way, that if you want Jesus Christ, you must have all of him. Thinking about Christ as our great high priest is is something that few people would argue with if they think they have some kind of sin that needs to be dealt with. Those are always the easiest sermons to preach. Christ is our great high priest. Well, here's how he's our great high priest. He goes to the cross for us. He lays down his life for us. It's the heart of the gospel. But Jesus being a prophet, now all of a sudden with our postmodern sensibilities, we start to have problems. If Christ is our prophet, that means he, he has the authority to tell us how we are to think, how we are to live, to tell us uh, what reality is like and what we ought to expect of ourselves and what he expects of us. We tend to resist that. Christ is king, perhaps we would especially resist, or those who perhaps think uh, the way 
that we are taught to think in today's world. We like to think we are masters of our lives. We are the king of our own little kingdoms, the captains of our own soul. But if you want Jesus Christ as a priest, you must have him as a king. If you want Christ at all, he must be your Lord. And to understand who he is is to understand the glory of the gospel, to understand the depth of what he has done for us. And that, of course, means that we will joyfully come under his kingship. This is what Jesus Christ does. He subdues us unto himself and makes it our great joy to serve him and to give our allegiance to him all of our days. We're going to look at various scriptures, but touch back a few times on Psalm 110, Psalm 2, and Romans 14. But the first idea is this. Jesus rules all things. His authority is unquestioned. It is the truth. It is the reality. We ought to assent to that truth. He rules over all things. Colossians 1 is a clear affirmation of this. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Speaking of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. As God the Son, he has been granted all power and authority. This always has been his. God the Son has always reigned. All things were created through him and for him. But in the life of Christ, that is made manifest. It's made manifest in the context of Redemption, it is made known in the world. So Jesus says as he ascends to heaven in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I have received it all. And that is what we understand to be the truth now. It's a manifestation of the rule of Christ. It doesn't mean he did not have that during his life. Jesus says in John 6, that on the Son God the Father has set his seal. He's already put that seal Upon him. We read in Psalm 2, as we just read tonight, as for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So Christ rules all things, and he always has, and that has become more known in the life of Christ than in the resurrection, and we are to live in accordance with it. So, first, uh, Jesus, he orders all things for his own glory and the good of his kingdom. That's one of the ways that he exercises his rule over all things. He orders all things that happen for his own glory and for our good. One of the great verses for this truth, of course, is Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now think about it. The kind of king that... Jesus teaches us that he is in his word. A king to whom we are to give all of our allegiance in life and in death. A king to whom we are to give all of our trust. That only would be a legitimate demand from Christ if he were the kind of king who orders all things in the universe according to his glory and to our good. Once again, John Owen says this, I cannot believe in him as my heavenly king who is not able by himself and by virtue of his presence with me to make what changes in the minds of men are pleasing to him. In other words, he has to have the power to order all things in the lives of all men, even in their, even 
in themselves. And to order all creation according to his pleasure. And to relieve, preserve, and deliver me. And to raise my body at the last day. The kind of faith we are to have in Christ as our king. Is that uh, we trust him so much because he is ordering all things according to his good pleasure. He says, give me all of your trust. I will work out all things for the best result of my glory and your good. That's the kind of king that we serve. He exercises a diplomatic power in that he calls people out of one kingdom into his kingdom. So 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right? His, his sovereign power is over the dark powers of this world so that he is able to pluck people out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into his. One way that he exercises authority is that he sends the Spirit That is an act of authority. For our good to illumine the scriptures, he gives forth to us the the Holy Spirit. And in uh, in that picture, he is a benevolent king giving gifts from his throne. And he pours out the best gift he could give us, the Holy Spirit. He rules over his enemies. Even those who try to thwart the kingdom of Christ, even those who try to stand in the way of the gospel, we read that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. God, in Jesus Christ, will not let the church be ultimately defeated until the end of the age. And then finally, Christ, in exercising a royal authority, has given us a new and a living way to worship the one true God. He has abolished old covenant worship. He has ushered in this new way and he calls all people in all corners of the earth to worship him according to his word. That is an exercise of his kingly rule. This is what Psalm 2 is saying. The son, the Messiah, is the king of the earth. And all people must submit to him and his power. But his rule and his reign is a unique one. He is vested with all power and authority, but he does not rule with an iron fist. He rules with a scepter of love. His kingship is known to us through the cross, through the king giving of himself. He's a meek king. He's gentle. He is loving. So he rules all things, but then he also rules his people. He rules all things, and then he rules his people. We read in the words of the Catechism that he subdues his people unto himself. Jesus draws us to him by showing us the nature of his kingdom and his call. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He draws us, subdues us to himself with a, with a message of grace and a message of love. In our doctrines of grace, we talk about irresistible grace, that Christ, uh, ordering his kingdom according to the Father's decree, according to the power of the Spirit, that he draws men unto himself. And it is in such a way that it doesn't go 
uh, against our desires, but God works in such powerful ways that he awakens the desires within a human heart to reach out and to look to Christ in faith. That is the sovereignty of God uh, working in the heart of his people. He draws them unto himself and then he rules them. Christ as king rules over his people. As we said, he exercises control with the scepter of love. Psalm 110 verse 3 says that your people, or there in in the NIV, I think it said your soldiers or your troops, will be willing on the day of battle. How is it that Christ exercises this kind of kingly rule and reign in his people, subdues us to himself, and then makes us willing to submit to him? So 1 John chapter 5 says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Those hearts that have been captured by Christ, by his grace, uh, by the scepter of love, we look at the law of God, and his law is not burdensome. So he draws us to himself uh, by setting before us a a message that is kind. We read in the book of Romans that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. He makes us willing on the day of battle in that he works in and through our hearts and awakens our affections to serve him and to make it our great joy to say he is our king. He does not rule us like a tyrant that we would seek to overthrow but he reminds us over and over again of his love. This, of course, happens as we think through the glory of the gospel. This is the judge who became the judged. This is the king who sat underneath unjust rulings of earthly governors and earthly diplomats who did all of this for us who took sin upon himself as a righteous king as a holy king he draws us to himself his commandments are not burdensome as we look to him doing all of these things for us he rules his people in and through the church how does jesus tangibly rule over his people on earth well he does that primarily in and through the church And so officers who are elected and ordained within the church and given spiritual authority, that is an extension of Christ's office of king. So Hebrews chapter 13 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The officers that he gives to the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, it's interesting that the gifts that the exalted king gives to the church are people. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Christ rules over us through these officers that he has set up. Causes us to think that we have to remind ourselves that they are placed in that position by the will of God. And it is no accident that they... Are there. We ought to respect the office. Christ rules in and through the church, not only through the officers, but also through the opening of the scriptures. What is the, the chief act that is to happen in the church? Well, the scriptures are to be opened and taught. 
The life of God that he calls us to is to be explained and read and set before the people. We are to to call the people to all of these things. Acts chapter 2, we read the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They wanted to learn. Jesus, we read in today's passage, not only was he preaching, but we read also that he was teaching. The ministry of Jesus, not not only proclamation that the kingdom had come, but teaching about the way of his kingdom, the way of life. And we'll see that as the Sermon on the Mount is soon to come in our study of Matthew. Colossians chapter 3 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let his word dwell in you richly. Why? Because that is what will produce, by the power of the Spirit, a life that joyfully submits to the kingship of Christ. Let your heart resound with the word of God. So officers through the opening of the scriptures. And then lastly, Christ rules in the church through the exercise of discipline. Censures and various forms of discipline can be enacted upon wayward members to lead them to repentance so that they may see the seriousness of their sin. What what is church discipline for? It's to restore those who have lost their way. It's to bring them back under the lordship and the kingship of Christ, that their life has gone off to one side or another. There's something out of joint. It's important to remember that as we think about the vows that we take, as we join the church, as we think about the kind of of willingness we have in submission to the leadership and the officers of the church. God has established these things. That's not to say that human rulers are infallible. It's not to say that preachers never make mistakes, but it is to say that this is the extension of Christ's kingship. We are called to respect what God has established in the church. It is for our good and even things that become uncomfortable, things like church discipline. Why is it established? It is for the good of those who have lost their way, to restore them, to remind them that these things are utterly serious and to give your life to Christ, to live for him, to come under his reign, those things all have eternal significance. He draws them unto himself. He he rules them. He rules them in the church, and then he defends them. He defends them. This is something that is more of a mystery to us because we don't uh, visually see with our eyes the kinds of comings and goings that are happening in the spiritual realm. One theologian says this, There are spiritual foes, and they are many. They are subtle, and they are strong. From the assaults of these, Christ defends his people by his word and spirit. As a king, he corrects his people for their sins, so as to make them more careful in the time of temptation, and to cause them to rely more and more upon the gracious support of their king. He rewards them for their faithful service, and thus cheers them in their conflict with sin and all their foes. He supports them in all their temptations and makes his powerful grace sufficient for all their need. He will not suffer them to be tempted above what they are able to stand. So also in the season of sorrow and suffering, they will not be overlooked nor forgotten by their king, but will receive strong consolation seeing that they have fled to him for refuge. When we see a believer 
makes it to the end of his or her life, makes it to heaven. It is a testament of the power and the reality of Christ's reign as king of kings and as king of his people. We would not be able to make it to the end of our life trusting in Christ, looking to him, if it were not for his power, if it were not for the way that he had held us up in temptation, if it were not for the way that he had kept us from sin in ways that we don't even realize, ways that we cannot see, he is exercising this eternally wise rule and reign over his people all the time. So he rules all things. He rules his people Lastly, as we close tonight, does he rule you? Does he rule you? It is well and good to confess that Christ is king of all, that he is king of the cosmos. These are things that are good and they are right and they are true, but where is the most practical, daily, consistent place that the kingship of Christ is known and experienced? It's in our hearts flowing out into our lives. Thomas Watson says this, Christ rules in the hearts of men. He sets up his throne where no other king does. He rules the will and the affections. His power binds the conscience. He subdues men's lusts. He will subdue all of our iniquities. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we're often thinking about uh, the evil that we see in the world. There's so much evil. There's, there's so many people out there doing so many evil things. And that certainly is true. But when we pray, may, that, may thy kingdom come, aren't we praying that it would begin with us? That the kingdom uh, and the work of God to establish his kingdom and establish the rule of Christ, that it would begin in our own hearts. That is really what we ought to be seeking. That is really what we ought to be Uh, seeking to establish in our own lives. It begins with us, that Christ is reigning in our hearts, that we're taking joy and delight that he rules and he reigns over us. A couple things to consider. The first is this, uh, what other power is there? You've heard the proclamation of the kingdom. You've read the scriptures. You know what is proclaimed about Jesus Christ. That one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. One day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. So there is great wisdom, of course, in giving your allegiance to this king now. That he allows us to bend the knee to him. He allows us to confess with our tongues to him now. He shall reign forever and ever. That is good news. That is good news for those who have given themselves, given themselves to him. So what other power is there? Really, when you think about it in terms of actual reality, there is no one else to whom you can go to get the things that Christ promises. But what other king could you possibly want? Christ is ruler, he is king of kings, he reigns. And so that is true, so we have to square with that reality. But what other king could you possibly want? Other kings take in order to secure power. Other kings have to take for themselves and exploit and abuse and use. 
But Christ already has all things. He came to this world and he was not impressed with earthly glory because he already had a heavenly glory. He already had all of things even better than all of that in and of himself. He uses his power not against us, he uses it for us. He uses his resources not against us, he uses them for us. He uses his wisdom not against us, he uses it for us. He uses his grace for our good. Francis Beattie says that this fact that Christ uses all things for us cannot fail to greatly cheer the believer in his earthly pilgrimage. You have a king who reigns over all and who uses what is his for the good of his people. Deuteronomy 17 sets up what kind of king Israel was to look for. God said in Deuteronomy 17, I'll give you a king. But he is not to be a king like all of the nations. In fact, he is not to take from what you have. Uh, He is not to exploit the possessions of the people in order to make himself rich. He is actually to take a book of the law and he is to read it. He is to to rule uh, for me and to be a a vice king for me. You fast forward to 1 Samuel chapter 8. What do you see? Israel demands a king. What is the king that they want? They want a king like Saul. They want it. Tall, powerful, handsome, a king that can, you can go out and send out before you so he can fight your battles. But what, is that, what does a king like that end up doing? He takes from your families. He takes from your fields. He takes from your flocks. He takes what you have so that he can increase in riches. This is not what Christ does. He does not take from our families. He does not take from our fields or our flocks as though he needed anything. So what other king would you want? There is no other place you can turn to to find a power like what you have in Christ. There is no other place you can turn to to find a king like you have in Christ. As Romans 14 says, he is Lord of both the dead and the living. So live in light of his reign. Live in light of his rule. Since he is so great, submit to him. And submit to him cheerfully. Submit to his person and his laws. Thomas Watson, once again, says, Many would have Christ as their Savior, but not their Prince. Such as will not have Christ to be their King to rule over them shall never have His blood to save them. We should rejoice that we have been delivered from the tyranny of sin into the kingdom of God's peace and love. So, go to Christ and submit cheerfully to Him. The great promise, too, as we close, is that when we come under the power of our own corruption, we come under the power of sin, which so easily entangles. When we feel like our sin is too strong for us, we can look to Christ, our reigning king, who has already conquered sin. We can exercise faith in him as our king and by his power. By his grace, by his reign, he will conquer that sin in us as we go to him, trusting him day by day. There's practical effects of this doctrine. Christ rules and he reigns. And if we remember that, if we hold on to it, if we believe it, if we trust it, and if we trust in him, he will bring our lives into conformity with this truth. Let's pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, we Thank you for another day to worship you.
We praise you for sending your son, for setting him on Zion, for giving him a rule and a reign unlike any other. There's so many things about uh, these doctrines that we don't fully comprehend, and yet we thank you and praise you uh, that you have allowed them to uh, be opened up through your word. And we pray that we will live uh, in a way that matches the truth of these things, bring our lives into conformity with these truths. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.